You are listening to Worldwide Engineering. Worldwide Engineering. Worldwide Engineering. Worldwide Engineering. Hey, Worldwide Engineers, welcome to another episode of the Worldwide Engineering Podcast. My name is Leon, and you're about to listen to a conversation I had with Nadim Nathu, the co-founder of the Knowledge Society, a human accelerator program designed to build the next generation of global leaders and inventors. Enjoy. Nafit, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I have so many questions for you, and I've I've been following the Knowledge Society for a while. I've watched your conference about a year ago, um, just like you know we were talking behind the scenes. But for the people who've never heard of you, um, could you give us a brief overview of your life up until the moment you started the Knowledge Society, and what what drove you to do that? A brief overview of my life. I don't know if anyone has a brief overview, but um, <laughs> for for me, I, I think my biggest driver and passion is creating a positive change in the world. And and one of the biggest realizations I had is uh, that people are the driving force behind creating change. And it sounds so obvious. It sounds so obvious. But when you think about it, um, we're often focused on so many other things and improving so many other things that improving people is usually not in like the first, second or third list on our priorities. And so for, for myself and, and my brother who, who co-founded TKS with me, you know, we took a lot of the traditional passes, everyone else, school, university. Um, but during that time we traveled a lot. And so we found ourselves in Bangladesh and rural villages working on microfinance. We found ourselves in central Asia in the mountains of, Uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, creating uh, early childhood development center policies and, and helping consult with um, a multi-school system in, in these like mountainous areas. Uh, we were in East Africa in, in areas like Kenya and Mombasa, working with young people on social development. And throughout our, our travels in a lot of these different countries around the world, it, a couple of things are very clear. The first thing is that there are a lot of problems in the world. There are a lot of problems in the world and people don't know about these problems, but there's tons of them. The second one is that there's not a lot of smart people in the world working on solving these problems. If, if, you, if the denominator is number of problems and the numerator is number of smart people working on them, that ratio is completely off. And a lot of the, the ways we can just make the world a better place is by just increasing the numerator, increasing the number of people working on these problems. And to do that, there's really two things we need to do. The first one is exposing more people to the problems that exist. And the second one is actually training them to want to and be able to solve those problems, right? It's a pretty simple equation. But when you think about how the world works today, we grow up not knowing about how the world really works. Um, and some people could argue, yeah, of course, we read the news, we do this. But I would say that's not that's not very Um, indicative of how the world works. There's a lot of areas that we don't talk about um, that that are important in a global context. And the second is, we're not really training people on how to actually solve a lot of these problems. When you think about our school system, when you think about how we get evaluated, how we move through, you know, this, I don't know, for lack of a better <laughs> word, assembly levels. line. Yeah, yeah right. this, these levels, these assembly lines. Um, it, it's just a uh, It's very systematic. It's not based on, okay, what do people need to thrive in the world? It, it was based on um, what do people need to get to a certain 
point where now they can start um, being a contributor in in businesses, right, in society. And one of the things that I think about is how the the systems we have today um, they're they're the they're just the standard. They're the bar. When you have a high school degree, you have met the bar. And when you have the best marks in high school, you have just met the bar really well. You haven't exceeded the bar by getting the best grades in school. You've just been really good at meeting the bar. And, and I think that often gets confused for, for a lot of people that doing well in school is not doing well in the world. It's just doing well in, in the system. That's so interesting. And you think, to your point, that the goal of school You know, people go through 20 years of their life. That's uh, 20% of, more, about 30% of someone's life, if your life expectancy is around 80, 90, is just schooling between high school and university. But then wouldn't you think that the goal of school would be to form individuals to solve those world's largest problems? So when you think about who's setting these goals, right? When you think about who's setting these goals, it's usually governments. Governments I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be controversial on this podcast because I feel like we're both on the same page and people will probably be about this. But governments like have it. a monopoly on, they have a monopoly on education. They decide what has to get taught and there's actually legal rules around it. In many countries around the world, it's illegal not to go to school, especially um, at the lower grades. And so if you were to go and say, you know, I have a different view on education. I'm going to start my own school that doesn't teach um, logarithms, geometry, calculus, derivatives. Instead, it teaches problem solving. Um, it teaches communication, teamwork, emotional intelligence. And through that, they might learn a little bit about derivatives, but it's not a curriculum focused on derivatives. You would not be able to do that. It, it would, you would, your kids would not be able to get a diploma and the government would find the parents who send the kids to your school because that's illegal. The kids have to go to Uh, accredited school. And so there is a there is not only just a monopoly on education, but it's a stifling around innovation and in education. Now when you think about okay, why that is because you talked about gold. Can I play can I play the devil's advocate on that point because I know what you, where you're going with this and it's super interesting. But I'm going to play devil's advocate. Wouldn't you think that the governments that uh, a society of people that know how to problem solve that know and understand emotional intelligence, that know how to reason, wouldn't you think that that indirectly would result in a better economy and that would result in byproduct but in a more stable and powerful government? So then why wouldn't the government, if they have so much control over education, reshape the education system to make humans more productive basically for the economy because smarter people, healthier people, Happier people are more productive for the economy. It's been proven. <laughs> that's, the, that's the big question. Why haven't we taken action to actually unlock people's potential and develop them so that they're more capable, so that we're more intelligent, um, we're more able? And I think there's a lot of hypotheses around this. For example, to just introduce a coding curriculum and many countries around the world has taken five plus years um, to introduce just one new class with the class content and the textbook and everything 
takes years of planning and prep work through these systems. The education system is a massive system, and I'm not at all, um, I'm not at all negative towards the people in that system because there's a lot of handcuffs. It's very, very difficult to change a large system. And not only is it difficult to change that individual system, but think about the systems that follow from it. You go to high school, and now let's talk about the goal piece because this is actually tying into it. You go to high school, not for the goal of getting the best education, but for the goal of going to university or college. It's the next step. It's the next level in, in the game. And so the, the game you're playing in, in, uh, in secondary school and high school is to get grades so you can get into the best universities and colleges. That is what it's built. So when you think about, okay, how do we build that system? Well, it is very much based on evaluation. If you have hundreds of thousands of people applying to universities and colleges, how are you supposed to evaluate their problem-solving skills? How are you supposed to evaluate their communication skills? Isn't it much easier to look at a couple of different buckets like math, science, arts, and say, okay, based on these generalized buckets that seem to cover a lot of areas in knowledge, can we assign a number to them and then use that number to filter people? And we can do that pretty automatically in systems. When you think about that, that's much easier to filter hundreds of thousands of people, right? And we've actually learned that system from the Industrial Revolution, basically. You know, when you grade people from ABC, it's like grading parts. You know, in manufacturing, you grade, you grade the, the quality of a piece that came out of the machine with an ABC grade, basically. It's the same thing. And, and I think, it, not I think, I know that it was very valuable in the industrial era, which is when we did start it, when we did start to really um, build out our education systems, right? And the world's changed now, though. It's changed a lot. Um, it's not just about filtering kids into these systems. You know, one of the biggest changes is just the purpose of these institutions, like we're talking about. If the purpose of high school is to go to university, what's the purpose of university? What's the purpose of college now? And this is one of my big thinking areas because when I look at how much stress that kids are going through today, how the level of depression, anxiety that young people have about their grades, about the next step in their careers, it's, it's getting out of hand. We work with thousands of kids around the world and mental health is amongst the number one priority of most of these students. Anxiety, depression, loneliness, these are some of the biggest problems we're tackling. And, and, you, and, and you know this, and I don't know if the listeners know this, but we run an accelerator focused on emerging technologies, not, uh, not a program on mental health, but yet a lot of what we do is based around mental health and emotional intelligence and, and, and mental strength, because that's the way that the world has kind of evolved there right? And that's a problem. That's a huge problem. So now when we think about universities, okay, well, what's the, what's the point of universities? Well, initially, you wanted to go to Harvard, to Stanford, to Oxford, because that's where you were going to be the most educated. If you went to Harvard Law in, in 1970, you would have come out Harvard Law as one of the smartest lawyers in the world. If you went to Harvard Law today, 
I don't think you would be guaranteed one of the smartest lawyers in the world today, right? Now let's take that to a lot of different subjects. If you went to Stanford and did computer science at Stanford, would you be one of the best computer scientists developers in the world? Probably not. It's probably that person that's building a ton of projects on GitHub using Coursera, maybe using Andrew Ring's course, or maybe using Udemy or Udacity, self-learning, using YouTube videos, building a bunch of projects, and then you know, getting hired at some startup that goes from zero to a billion dollars, right? And that concept's changing, the concept of education in universities. And so when you look at the purpose of universities now, my, my kind of argument is I think it, a lot of it is signaling. It's credentials. And credentialism, I think, is one of the biggest barriers to learning today. And if we were to sum up everything we just talked about in the last maybe 15 minutes, I think it's that part, that credentialism is one of the biggest barriers to learning. That, that parents, that students, that um, recruiters, that companies are prioritizing the wrong thing. We're prioritizing credentials more than we're prioritizing abilities. And that needs to change because when these education systems were built, they were built to help develop abilities. That was the intention. But now the world's changed so much and there's a gap. And the, that gap is the abilities gap. There's a lot of things that the needs that we're not training, but yet we're providing these credentials that signal intelligence, but the gap between the signal being It makes total sense. Before we get into the skills that you teach in your curriculum, I'm curious, at what point did you and your brother, Nadim, reach a point where you're like, enough of this, we're starting our own uh, school, TKS, basically, uh, with the goal of helping people acquire those skills that aren't being taught out there. What was your first steps in executing on that vision? So... Nadim and I, it was 2016, early 2016, late 2015, Nadim was working at McKinsey. So McKinsey, global consulting firm, he was working on billion dollar projects in Japan, Australia, the US, just around the world. And uh, at that time, I recently got my company acquired by a public billion dollar company called Box. So we were in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley. Um, and the company I was running was a cloud security company. Box is one of the leading enterprise uh, cloud software collaborator platforms in the world. And, uh, you know, we, we joined their team. And it was, a, it was a cushy life working with very smart people, working in Silicon Valley, work, you know, on interesting things. Great company, um, great culture, free food. You know, it was, it was the, the life people dream about in these movies, right? And Nadim and I were talking and he turns to me one day and he asked me this question. If we had $10 billion in our bank account, what would we be doing? And when you think about that question, it's a really important question because you don't think about what you would buy at 10 billion. Think about it. If you were to buy the cars you wanted, the houses you wanted, the electronics you wanted, all of those things you wanted, the houses, even an island, you would still be spending less than like $200 million. This is 10 billion right? You still have, you know, 8 billion 
800 million or it's 9 billion, 900, 800 billion to spend, whatever, right? Like there's insane amount that you still need to figure out at that point. So it's not about what you would buy. Now it's about how you want to spend your time. And so when you think of that question, if I had $10 billion in my bank account, how would I spend my time? Well, now you start really introspecting and thinking about, okay, what do I do with my real most valuable asset? Because money is not the most valuable asset. It's a means. It's a resource. The most valuable asset we have is time. And so how do we want to spend it? And um, we started thinking about it. And ultimately, where we, we came up to two things. The first one is we want to we wanna make a positive impact in the world. We want to solve problems because I think that's one of the best ways to make a positive impact in the world, solve problems. And the second thing is we wanted to increase, we want to figure out how to increase um, human potential. Because one thing we strongly believe to be true is that most people are operating at maybe 30 to 40% of their full potential. And it's not a factor of themselves. It's a factor of the systems that we use to develop people. The education system should be a development system. However, we believe that it's turned into an evaluation system. That being said, it's not like people don't get developed in the education system. Obviously, they do. Obviously, there's great parts of the education system. The teachers are amazing people who care. The intentions behind it is great. But the way it is today, if you look at it from an alien landed in the world and an alien is looking at the system and they're looking at how it works, people get into it from eight to three or whatever the case is. Um, they're in these classes that taught, they're taught specific things. They get tests taken on those specific things to know how well they're doing. And then the results of those things are decided if they get to move to the next stage. It is not, oh, you're doing poor in this area. Let's continue to work on that until you've achieved mastery. And that's one of Sal Khan's biggest um, areas of, I guess, content or biggest areas of frustration, if that's the right word, with, with the current way we have the system. It's not built on mastery. If you have a 70% in derivatives class, that means you technically know 70% of the content. But what happens now? You move to the now you move to logarithms. But what should you be doing? Uh, Sal Khan says, well, you should be staying in derivatives and saying, okay, let's continue to do this until we've reached 90, 100%. Not continue when you've had 70% because now you go to the next topic and with, with knowing 70% of the first topic and what's going to happen? Well, you're probably going to continue at a 70%, 65% and, and it's going to compound because you don't fully understand the concept before you move to the next concept. And if we look at education, trying to build building blocks and fundamentals, you have weak fundamentals you can't build the tallest tower in your knowledge. And so you should be trying to focus on mastery at each level as you're building that tower. And that's not what we're doing either, right? So then what are the main skills that you have as part of your curriculum? I know you, you, you guys have hundreds of students out there and you have a very comprehensive curriculum with people that have actually went through the, the process themselves. You know, if you're teaching business and critical thinking, you have someone that's from Silicon Valley that's actually built a billion dollar company teaching that course. You know, how cool is that? <laughs> you know? So what are, if you can name me five to 10, you know, just some of the qu the, the, the main uh, topics you teach in there. Yeah, so the topics are separated uh, around four areas. Okay, the four areas are mindsets, knowledge, skills, and networks slash relationships. 
And we focus on these four pieces. So for example, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples in each of these pillars. In knowledge, we focus on emerging technologies and sciences, artificial intelligence, blockchain, quantum computing, gene editing, nanotechnology, human longevity. In skills, we focus on real world skills like communication, teamwork and collaboration skills, presentation skills, uh, writing skills, for example, written, uh, how to write blog posts and articles. In mindsets, we focus on mindsets like helpfulness, kindness, but also anti-fragility, stoicism, done is better than perfect, thinking 10x, bias towards action. And then in networks, we focus on training first the why. Why is it important to have a network and deep relationships and not transactional networks, which is why I said relationships in that, right? It's really about people. People, like I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, are the core of the world. We make change. But people are also the core of happiness, right? Our relationships is what makes us happy. Not our cars, not our houses. It's the people. It's your family. It's your significant other. It's your best friends. It's the people around you. And so how do you develop a network built on authentic, meaningful relationships? And we train kids on how to build these networks, whether it's how to uh, use LinkedIn and emails as a cold outreach tool, whether it's using LinkedIn or building your personal brand uh, through websites or medium or whatever the case is. And so if you look at our students, you'll often find that they have Twitter, that they have LinkedIn, that they have uh, personal websites, that, they are, that they're blogging, that they're connected with very smart people around the world. And then when it comes to them uh, getting internships, so a lot of our students have worked at IBM, Microsoft, a ton of different startups working in blockchain, artificial intelligence, largest quantum computing companies in the world our students have worked at. We have the youngest quantum computing engineers that have come from our program. We have now the youngest quantum dot scientist in our program. She's 14 years old. She just sent me a paper that she wrote on quantum dots. And I told her, you're officially the, the youngest expert in quantum dots after reading this paper from her. And she got it validated by industry experts and scientists. And it blew my mind. 14 years old. Um, it's nuts. And I think it's because of these four pieces, right? And underlining these four pieces, knowledge, skills, mindset, network, is community. It's this community of like-minded, driven, curious people. And that's what we do in TKS. We've built this global community of people who are ambitious, who want to make an impact on the world, who don't want to be the average nine to five. And, and not that the average nine to five is bad, but it's the mindset of settling. That's what they're against. They want to be the exception. And that's often what we talk about. Um, one of the one, one thing my brother says that's become kind of a motto of the program is in in order to achieve unconventional success, you have to take an unconventional path. And that's a lot of what we do at TKS. We help students see what are the unconventional paths that they can take, that they can get excited about and passionate about and start building themselves in those areas. Man, that is so cool. I wish I knew about TKS when I was 15 years old. I swear, I actually have two young cousins uh, here that I'm actually staying. Uh, they're my family, my uncle's uh, kids i have two younger cousins 14 uh 13 and 15 i'm actually after this podcast i'm gonna go downstairs and i'm gonna convince them <laughs> to try applying for tks i think they'd love it so my yeah I had our, a our applications are open so it's a good time <laughs> um so uh, then i had a question for you the program 
and that's, I guess, for people that are listening, they don't have that much context. Your program is not necessarily a replacement for school or high school. It's, um, it's, it's, a, it's something you do extracurricular. So it's what you do usually if you would, anything you do, uh, let's say you go to football after school. Instead of doing that, you'd be at TKS or instead of gaming and wasting time, you'd be at TKS acquiring skills on top of that. Is that correct? Yeah, so the best way to think about it is like competitive sports. Um, you have people that train for, let's say, the Olympics. And how do they train for the Olympics? They still go to school, but after school, they're training. They're with their coaches. They're working on their mental strength. They're working on their physical strength. They're working on their technique. That's what TKS is. It's training for the Olympics, but instead of, uh, instead of training to compete in swimming, um, you're, you're competing in innovation. You're competing in solving problems in the world. And unlike sports and unlike the Olympics, there's no one winner. In TKS, one of the biggest things that we focus on in our community is collaboration. In a global competitive landscape, we really have to train our students that everyone can win. Everyone can solve problems in the world. There are so many problems that... Um, that there's enough to go around. We don't need to compete here. And when you actually zoom out and you look at how young people are getting trained, they're getting trained on competition, right? There, there's only one person that's at the top of the class. There's only limited spots at university. There's only three of those positions at that company. Uh, when you're playing sports, there's only one winner. And so TKS, one of the big differentiators, I think, from a lot of different you know, areas of young people's lives is that it's a win-win, that we can all win together. And I think that collaborative culture has really shifted the way people interact in this ecosystem. So anyways, um, yeah, think of more of like Olympic level training. And so these kids are working on projects after school. They're getting coached from their directors. So we have like, a, we call them Olympic level coaches that are trained on how to help these kids unblock not only, um, you know, knowledge gaps, but also just general problems they're having in life, whether that's motivation problems, whether that's problems about being confused or about their friends, you know, young people, high school kids, junior high kids, whatever, they go through a lot of problems. You know, they're going through puberty. This is a big part in young people's lives. And so our directors um, are working with them through all these different aspects and they start building strong relationships with them to help these kids unlock their full potential. It's not just about their projects in AI, but it's it's about their general mindset. Are they thriving? Are they happy? Are they joyful? Are they fulfilled? So it's your it's a, for you. It's a ten week accelerator program, ten month accelerator program. Okay, so what happens after someone goes through this ten month process? So. It's, it's a great question because one of the things that we strongly believe to be true is there's no one size fits all. And there are core pieces that we want to develop, like being a great communicator, a great problem solver, being able to have self-agency, to be able to decide what you want to do and have the mental models and frameworks to make those decisions. And with a lot of these pieces that we train in TKS, along with all the areas that we expose the kids to, for example, AI, blockchain, et cetera, these kids have built their own paths. And I'll tell you about some of the paths that these students have chosen. 
Uh, and by the way, our oldest student in the program is now 21 years old. That's that's how young these kids are, right? Because we started it in 2016. So it hasn't been too long now. Um, so one student, Ben Nashman, we often uh, talk about him because he's doing some incredible things. He started a company called Synex Medical. He's building a ring to detect your glucose levels and other blood metabolites non-invasively. Like, like, the, aura like the aura ring, but oh, there it is. <laughs> but basically a, a thousand <laughs> times more. It's an it's crazy the technology Ben is building. If Aura acquired their company, or I think Apple is probably going to acquire Synex, um, unless Synex just <laughs> grows like crazy. But um, they they have proprietary technology patented to develop uh, or to detect these blood metabolites better than any other technology in the world. They raised uh, around about seven million dollars. Uh, and some of their initial investors include the president of Neuralink. It includes Naval Ravikant, Sam Altman, who was former president of Y Combinator, if not existing president of Y Combinator, I think former president, um, and a bunch of other incredible people, Radical Ventures, a lot of, a lot of smart VCs. Um, and so he's running a team of over 20 people now across Boston and Toronto. I guess now everything's remote um, and they're building out this amazing technology. And and it's not even just about the company, but as a person, he's grown so much. And like I said, he's about 21 years old. You have uh, another person, Michael, who came into TKS excited about biology and got very interested in, in CRISPR, gene editing, and that area. Um, he, since then, he's developed his skills. He's developed his knowledge, written multiple research papers, and is now he was invited to work at a Harvard research lab with some of the leading scientists and one of the leading labs in longevity and aging. That's crazy. He is in second year university working with PhDs, master's students. He also recently started a group called BioDojo where he's inviting young people from around the world um, who are passionate about this area to collaborate and work on hard problems. Uh, Sayon is another example who's someone who's worked in biology, but the, but the intersection between drug discovery and artificial intelligence and using machine learning to detect new uh, proteins and drugs, which is incredible stuff. And he's spoken at conferences around the world, both AI conferences and healthcare conferences, because again, he's at that intersection. And there's a ton of students that if I just go down the list are working on incredible things from blockchain, brain computer interfaces, uh, artificial intelligence, all of these emerging areas. And a lot of people ask me, like, why do you focus on just these emerging areas? There's a lot of areas you could focus on. And my response is that these emerging areas are tools. Um, they're tools and they're new tools. And we can use these new tools to solve problems in ways a lot of people aren't solving them before. And just like existing tools, if you, if you master two different tools and combine them, all of a sudden you can solve problems that not many people are, are solving. And so one thing that we focus on is the intersection between a lot of these areas. What is the intersection between AI and quantum computing? And that area is now called quantum machine learning. There's a great um, what's book the intersection? about that. There's a great book about that. The, the, um, the, the future is faster than you think. Have you heard of it? I know a lot of people like uh, Peter Diamandes and yeah. a lot of these thought leaders focus on, Ray Kurzweil focus on um, the future and these futurists. And there's so many awesome books like this one that talk about it, but we're seeing it here. Yeah. You know, like TKS is a case study for it. You don't need to read about it. You can actually just 
go to our website, tks.world and see what these kids are doing. And we actually released a new, uh, new tab there called meet a student. And now people can just schedule meetings with our, with our students and see what they're doing. Because a lot of people are looking at us saying, no, you know, it's probably just five of their kids or 10 of their kids or just the one he mentioned on this podcast, for example. And as soon as you see these kids and you meet them, you realize that it's not the anomalies that these kids who are building projects in AI and blockchain, who are, are thinking about philosophy, stoicism, uh, these different mindsets, it is the, the average, that's the average of TKS. And I think that's pretty incredible. And I think that's something I'm, I'm really proud of. So Navid, uh, one last question for you before I jump to the Q&A uh, section. I actually have a few questions that were submitted from the Worldwide Engineering community for you. Before we go into that, what are, uh, you're all about disruption. So how do you see disruption? Uh, how do you see technology disrupting education as a, an industry? Yeah, a lot of, lot of thoughts on this. Um, I, first, I wouldn't, I think it's going to disrupt it in one area and I think it's going to enhance it in the other area. Um, for enhancements, I, I think there's a, a ton of enhancements for teacher tools. Um, again, I'm a big, big supporter of teachers. I think they're one of the most important, I guess, professions in the world, um, if not the most important profession in the world. And I think that technology is going to equip them to have even better uh, abilities to develop that develop their students. Um, there's a lot of amazing companies that are building tools for teachers. And I think there's still a lot um, uh, of opportunity in that area. I think that there's a lot of tools in self-learning. One thing that we've actually found in MOOCs is that self-learning is not actually, uh, what's the word? It's not actually successful. People aren't as great at self-learning. Completion rate at, of MOOCs are about 4% or less. And what we've learned is it's really about collaborative learning. Uh, it's about edutainment. And I like that word. People want to enjoy learning. And so I think a lot of the, I think a lot of enjoyment also comes from other people. You look at games like Fortnite, League of Legends, Roblox, a lot of it's very collaborative with other people. I think that's the world uh, education's going to more bridging uh, gamification and education together. The closer uh, learning feels like a game, uh, that's where you're going to get more and more uh, learning and, and engagement from young people and just people in general, actually. And then the third thing I would say is in the university space. I think this is where the disruption is going to come. I haven't said this publicly yet on any podcast, so I think this is the first one I'm going to publicly say it on. But I think university is going to get disrupted in three pieces. Um, university right now has three big areas that, uh, that, that I think people can, can break apart. The first big area is the community and the experience. Uh, it's, a, it's a really valuable part of university. You go there for the, for the people, for the experience, uh, for the network, and it's just a great period of time in your life. The second uh, part is the knowledge, the actual learning about the topic, whether it's law, whether it's science, biology, whether it's business, arts, whatever the case is. And then the third piece is the actual job that comes from it, the next step, so to say. And you can actually break those three pieces out now. And I think there's going to be formal institutions and companies that are actually going to master those three steps and, and disrupt university by, by owning those three things completely. And a student is going to engage in those three things by themselves. So for example, for the experience piece, 
I can see organizations like WeWork or even the Selena. If you know what Selena is, they, they're, I think they're a Panamedian company, but um, they have these, I guess, like hostels or living areas, co-livings. They have co-livings um, across, I guess, like Central America. I was staying at a WeWork in Panama um, for over a month. And you meet amazing people, you go on amazing tours, you can surf, scuba dive, hike, but there's also a co-working space where people are learning and there's great internet uh, and you're developing yourself. And so you're meeting a lot of these great people having this amazing experience, global experience, but you're also learning because it's meant for work and play. Then the second piece on the knowledge, you have Coursera, you have Udacity, you have Udemy, you have all of the, you have edX, all of these amazing MOOCs and online courses that people are able to attend. Even Harvard, Stanford, Yale, they're starting to put a lot of their lectures online on YouTube and you can access them. And then the third piece around getting a job, there's, there are already a lot of areas, a lot of companies that are helping people get jobs based on their abilities, based on other aspects. And so you can see universities starting to get disrupted in those three pieces. You, I can see high school students start to think of, okay, what's an alternative to paying over $100,000 for a piece of paper for a credential. Can I stay at the Selena while taking this edX course taught by a Harvard prof on computer science and then use Lambda or this organization to then get a job at Google or get a job at you know that, that company that I wanna work at? That's so interesting, I never thought of that. That's really interesting. I can't wait to see how how it's all gonna turn out in the next few years. So right now, I'm pulling out some of the questions we have here. There we go. So we got one, uh, very good question by Andrew Match, uh, very loyal and active fan of Worldwide Engineering, I love it. So what subject should be added in a curriculum for career and personal development? And I think we can, because you've kind of covered this, maybe we can think if right now you could add one single subject to the already existing uh, curriculum, what would that one thing be? Uh, communication. Uh, I think when you think about communication, there's lots of different types of communication. Uh, and I think people should learn this. And I wish that I learned it when I was younger. For example, how to communicate through disagreements how to communicate through situations where um, people are having an argument, how to communicate in teams when you have five people on a team, how to communicate when you have 10 people on a team, how to communicate when you have 20 people together, uh, communication in terms of questions, how do you ask good questions? Um, what are, what's the leading question versus what's an open question? Uh, I think communication is the core of career building. I think it is the core of understanding people because like I mentioned again, just going back to at the beginning, people are at the core of everything today. It is not these systems, it is people. And the, the higher and higher you get in the world, the more and more important people become. I think the lower you are, I don't, want, I don't like that word lower, but the, the easier work you do maybe, the more systems are important and people are less important. The, the more knowledgeable you get in your field, the more and more you're working with people. And I think communication is the, the method of interaction between people. And so I would say really a, a, a communication course, but a good communication course, 
right? On emotional intelligence, on understanding people, on communicating through different situations, negotiation, question asking, uh, debating, all of those aspects I think are instantly important. I totally second what you just said. Um, Toastmaster is a very good resource. I've, I've been there a few times. So um, another good question by need.tech.charma. Uh, In the fast-growing era, technology skill changing very fast. So what do we need to educate? So, so, so to reformulate that uh, well... So our world is quickly changing and technology is basically disrupting uh, constantly. So a job that you're, let's say you're a computer programmer today, in 20 years, the, the, the AI is going to be able to code better than you. So your job is going to be out. Um, what is a skill you can learn to, uh, to basically overcome that growing change? The most important skill to develop is learning how to figure things out. That is the single most important skill. And, and TKS students ask me this all the time. Maybe there's so many skills we learn. Which skill should I focus on first? Which skill should I master? What's that skill that can lead to compounding uh, learnings in other areas? It is learning how to figure things out. If you have an issue, a problem, and you have a framework and a structure and the confidence to be able to figure it out, you will not be limited by anything. And um, this is applicable to every single aspect. It doesn't matter if you want to be a psychologist. It doesn't, want, it doesn't matter if you want to be a computer engineer. It doesn't matter if you want to work in blockchain, quantum computing, or if you want to work in law or medicine. Knowing how to figure things out is the number one most valuable skill uh, I think people should develop. I love that. Final question by Ariane0218. How will AR, VR help in education? I think there's going to be a lot of interesting companies that crack this and enhance the learning experience through AR and VR, especially um, to connect people globally. And so the specific thing on how AR and VR will help education, I think number one, it will enable people to develop global perspective. Um, I can be in a classroom with someone from India, with someone from Singapore, with someone from China, with someone from Australia, from New Mexico or Mexico, uh, Mexico City, and we can all be learning the same thing together. And not just from a teacher, but working on a project together. And I think what specifically VR will enable us to do is actually feel that we're working on something together in a collaborative space. And I think, again, that's important for understanding the world in a global context. Right now, most students learn in a bubble. If you grew up in Palo Alto, that is the people you're around, the teachers, the students, that's the world that you're in. If you grow up in you know, a small town in, in across like, I don't know, Wisconsin or Montreal or somewhere, like that's what you're gonna know. I think what VR is going to do is broaden our perspective to, oh, there's so many people around the world with different cultures, with different communication styles, with different values. And that soft kind of learning is actually, I think, more important than the actual project you're working on in the first place. I think the other piece is um, the, the engagement. Like the more attention you're 
towards something, the more you're going to put effort into it and learn from it. And I think uh, things like VR help you get that personalized education, but also building, being fully engaged in it. And you can imagine uh, a, a, a school like Harvard, right? What's the, sorry, I'm going to answer this question a little bit longer because I think it's really interesting, but why is Harvard so valuable? It's because it limits. If Harvard let every single person into Harvard, um, it wouldn't be Harvard anymore. The credential wouldn't matter. But all of a sudden, people should be getting the best education. But now let's think about why Harvard can't let everyone in. Well, because it's a physical space. You can't have a million people attending Harvard's computer science class in real time because you, you, it's just a physical space. But now let's imagine you have a virtual space. And now you have 100,000 or a million people attending Harvard's computer science class in a virtual space. And you have a group breakout. And all of a sudden, the professor can say, okay, great. And now in groups of four, go work on this problem. And it can automatically put you in great breakout rooms of four, right? Or it could take the uh, TAs and automatically break out all of these people in groups of 500 or 50 people, which is the size of a normal class anyways, and now teach you in those rooms and then come together for the main professor. And so there's a lot more flexibility you have when it comes to virtual rooms and segmenting people and organizing people and getting them to work together and collaborate with each other. You remove the physical limitation. And I think that has bigger implications as well to real estate, to transportation, um, but specifically to education. There, there's a lot of really interesting things that we can do in a virtual world, but we just need people to build it, right? And, and so there's a technology gap, but there's also a, a people gap. And so this is one of those things. How do we get people to work on important problems? And using that tool, I think um, someone's going to crack it. Those are two great points, broadening, broadening someone's perspective and uh, the, the, the physical space dilemma. And I totally agree with you. You know, I personally experienced this. The first point, actually, the most learning I've ever done in my life was when I moved from Lebanon to Montreal. That was the phase of my life I grew the most, the most, most, most. But to end things off, a uh, final question from me, Navid. Where can people learn more about the Knowledge Society? Who can apply and what would you um, suggest to them? Uh, so right now we have programs from age 11 to 17, 18 years old. Um, there's an application interview process. Our application deadline is, I think, like April 5th. Um, so definitely apply before then because we do interviews on an ongoing basis. The website is tks.world. Um, you can go there. You can set up a meeting with a student. If you're, if you're not convinced, um, you can check out the programs, all of those things. It does have a cost to it, um, but we have financial aid for students that can't afford the program. And so it, it is about inclusivity. Uh, it, it is about access. We give about $1.5 million in financial aid to students. If someone is listening to this and they are wealthy and they want to help students, reach out to us as well. Like we'd love to partner with you on how we can um, get you to help students who, who need financial support and get them into the program. Um, you can also follow some of our socials. I think our Instagram has great content on it. It highlights our directors. It highlights our students, what we do in the program. And that is at the K Society. So K is a knowledge at the K Society. Uh, and then also our Twitter is the same at the K Society. Uh, so you can follow us on on those areas. And, and there's so much content, even our YouTube. If you just Google the Knowledge Society on YouTube, there's all these videos of kids talking about their projects. 
Um, there's tons of stuff out there. So if you do even just look at one of them, I think you'll find a lot of interesting things happening. Navid, thank you so much for everything you're doing.